This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Today we continue our examination with Monsignor Ronald Knox of the Temptations of Christ. Here he examines the third temptation, at least the third according to the gospel narrative he's using, because Luke and Matthew place the temptations in different order, but, and he explains why he's using which one he uses here. But in this case, the third temptation is the political temptation, the temptation for earthly rule. And he goes over that, and then he connects that temptation to the previous temptations we've covered in the more recent Monsignor Knox videos I've done on how this plays out in our lives. And he takes it to a place you would not have expected, something that we are all too familiar with as Catholics in the modern world, to a place where warning Catholics about not engaging the sacrament of holy matrimony with people who don't share our faith and the danger that it can come from that. It's an odd twist. Many may not have seen that coming, but he explains it very well. Again, the devil took him up a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and said to him, All these I will give thee if thou wilt fall down and adore me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt adore the Lord thy God, and him alone shalt thou serve. See the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. St. Matthew and St. Luke, it is well known, give the three temptations of our Lord in a different order. I have adopted St. Matthew's because his account seems to imply more expressly that he has followed the order of time. It does not in any case make much difference whether the temptation to worship Satan assailed our Lord before or after the temptation to throw himself down from the pinnacle. For one is, if you come to think of it, the obverse of the other. Satan, let us remind ourselves again, was putting our Lord to the test, uncertain whether he was God incarnate or only man. But if he was only man, it did not follow that he might not think himself something greater than man, after the divine testimony which accompanied his baptism. The devil then will provide for either emergency. If Jesus of Nazareth thinks he is only man, with the whole faithless world to convince and convert, perhaps he will accept the offer of entering into alliance with me. Only one or the other, surely he will yield to my suggestions, Unless indeed, unless indeed he is incarnate God. In this third temptation, you see, there is no question of, if thou be the Son of God. That drops out altogether. Indeed, it has been suggested that the devil in this passage is actually pretending to be the Son of God himself. That would explain the confidence with which he says, All these things are delivered to me, and I give them to whom I will. In that case, our Lord replies, Get thee hence, Satan. Has a special point. Our Lord addresses Satan by name for the first time in the story to show that he is not deceived. It is Christ unmasking Antichrist. What was the high mountain to which our Lord was taken? I like to think it was Mount Carmel, our, Lord, our Lady's own hill. That would be a suitable setting for the incident. It looked down landwards over the plain of Estralon, which had been the battleground of east and west from the days when Egypt and Babylon met there in conflict in King Josiah's reign, to the day when the Turkish armies retreated across it at the end of the Great War. From Carmel to looking out seawards, you would catch sight of the huge grain ships making their northward voyage across the Mediterranean. Where do they come? From Egypt, the oldest civilization in history. Whither are they bound? For Rome, the latest civilization in history. All the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them in a moment of time. It was a scene to stir a man's blood, to appeal to a man's imagination. If this had been only man, if Jesus of Nazareth is only man, that surely is the devil's calculation. He is bound to hesitate to parley with the temptation. 
Look round you, he says, and read the history of the world's conquerors and epitome. Will you not be one of these? You come from a persecuted race, a race still suffering indignities under the oppression of a foreign invader. You have come to deliver your people, deliver them first from the tyranny of Rome. You have only to raise your standards, and your countryside will flock to them. You see that great camp yonder, which they call Legion. That camp you shall overrun and plunder. I will help you. You shall free your country. But that is not enough. You have come to reform the world. You must subdue it first before you can reform it. With my aid, you shall follow up your victory here by a march on Europe. You shall challenge Rome itself. Think of him who now holds the reins of imperial power, a weakling, a voluptuary who dares not show his face inside his own capital. Such a man you shall overcome. Jesus shall replace Tiberius. Then, when from the shores of Britain to the deserts of Partha, a world obeys and defies you. What a chance to effect the regeneration of the age. They are building temples today to the libertine Tiberius. Tomorrow, Jesus of Nazareth shall have his temples instead. Our Lord does not, in answering, give the obvious reason why the suggestion made to him is impossible. That would have been to fall into the devil's trap by revealing the secret of his own identity. Instead, he takes his stand on ground which any man might take equally well. I cannot worship you because worship belongs only to God. He does not question what he very well might have questioned, whether Satan really has command over all the kingdoms of the world, does not discuss, as he very well might have discussed, whether a promise coming from such a quarter would be deserving of any confidence, does not even consider whether such a career of triumph, has, as has been suggested, would in truth be a benefit to humanity. There is a condition attached to the promise, and that condition is an impossible one. Satan wants him to do evil in order that good may come of it. That is asking God to deny his own Godhead. The temptation of our Lord are the temptations of his church. The devil said to our Lord, Since you are divine, why not fly in the face of providence? And in the next breath, Since you are not divine but only human, why not acknowledge the fact by giving my claims the first place and yours only the second? History is scarred with the long record of that struggle between church and state. We have only to think of St. Thomas of Becket and St. Thomas More in the annals of our own country. Again and again it would have been possible for the church to make better terms for herself if she would have been forgotten of her divine origin would have partitioned out human activity between God and Caesar, on the understanding that Caesar's claim came first and God's second. Again and again she had been promised unlaborious success in her mission, on condition that she would hitch her star to the wagon of an earthly conqueror. That temptation comes to her in a peculiar form and with a peculiar force today. For a century nearly she has been engaged in a long struggle, not of her own choosing, with the left-wing parties in European politics, Everywhere the politicians who have spoken loudest in the name of justice and of freedom have been the first to deny justice and freedom to their Catholic subjects. Of late, these theories have taken exaggerated forms, and in the countries where their influence triumphed, the church has been exposed, as a matter of course, to bitter persecution. But in other countries, a rival movement has showed its head. A spirit of nationalism has taken the challenge thrown down to it by the hammer and sickle, and has beaten it by its own methods. Surely you would be inclined to say in these countries at least the church will come into her own. The authoritarian states which recognize the menace of a common enemy will be drawn closer than ever to the church, according to her unexampled privileges, that she may teach their citizens her own lesson of order and good citizenship. That is what we might have expected, but it is a matter of daily experience that such expectations were doomed to disappointment. Sometimes in these countries she lives on terms of precarious partnership, Sometimes the new rulers of Europe combat her influence not less fiercely, not less openly, than the hammer and sickle itself. What is the reason? The reason is a direct conflict of ideals. 
The totalitarian state, whether its color be of left or of right, has no room for any exercise of private freedom, has no room, therefore, for a church which can dispute its claim over men's consciences, especially where the younger generation is concerned. It is a straight issue whether the boys and girls of a country are to be Catholics first and citizens afterwards, or citizens first and Catholics afterwards. If that quarrel could be settled in a sense satisfactory to the, to the totalitarian state, then doubtless it would be willing enough to make use of the church as an engine of government, to grant her privileges on condition that she would be the mouthpiece of an inspired national policy. But such freedom would be brought at too dear a price. For the sake of peace and to save her own subjects from unnecessary manipulation, she does make the best terms she can, does everything to rebut the charges of an unnecessary interference in politics. She cannot sell her soul. The temptations of our Lord are also the temptations of his servants individually. But the scale of them naturally is different. The devil is not going to offer you and me all the kingdoms of the world. He knows his market, offers like a good salesman, just as much as he thinks his customer will take. I suppose he thinks with some justice that most of us could be had for 5000 a year, and a great many of us for much less. Nor does he, to us, propose his conditions openly. His offer comes to us wrapped in all sorts of plausible shapes. But if he sees the chance, he is not slow to point out to you and me how we could get the thing we want if we would be untrue to our better selves, and not infrequently if we would be untrue to our Catholic loyalties. And he is especially eager to put that kind of temptation in our way when we are young and just setting out on career as our Lord was. For he knows that at such a time of life the spur of ambition is strong, and the mind is less firm in its grasp of the supernatural. There are all sorts of ways in which being a Catholic handicaps you, may handicap you at any rate, for worldly success. We are a Protestant country still in the negative sense, and wherever there is a job to be got or an honor to be bestowed, there is a bias, although it may be a slight bias against a Catholic candidate. Oh, I know everybody is very broad-minded nowadays, but it is astonishing how broad-minded people will fight shy of giving employment or encouragement to a Catholic, for fear of coming across prejudice in somebody less broad-minded than themselves. But it isn't often that the prizes offered are so much worth having. It isn't often that the alternative of apostasy is so openly suggested as to make the prospect of a career dangerous to our faith. There is one special department of life, only one, in which the choice, good or God or Satan, is apt to be thrust upon us abruptly, hardly giving us time to think about it. And that is when man or woman begins to contemplate entering into the state of matrimony. We English Catholics live nowadays in a mixed society. Home influence, for a number of reasons, does not count for as much as it did. We live our own lives, make our own friends. The plain intention of the Church, that a marriage involving non-Catholics should be something exceptional, with special reasons to account for it, is almost universally ignored. Young men and women are not going to be shepherded, they tell themselves, into making a suitable match. We have finished with that kind of thing. Very well, then, but remember the risks you run if your choice of partner in life is going to be dictated to you by some sudden violent attraction founded on passion or even on sentiment. You may find that you have been betrayed into a position where you have to choose between resisting that attraction at whatever cost to your feelings or cutting yourself off, if not from the faith, at least from the life of the sacraments. Pray God that you may be spared into such a temptation as that, but it may come, and it is well to remember what the author of The Imitation of Christ tells us. Temptations do not make a man weak. They show what stuff he is made of. The church loses in these days, year by year, a steady proportion of souls through this drift into unfortunate marriage. But they are not, most of them, souls remarkable for their faith or their devotion. It is mostly among weak need and careless Catholics that the harm is done. 
Make up your mind then, if you are to walk safe in a world of temptation, that you will fortify yourself against the danger of it, while there is yet time, by the faithfulness to prayer and the sacraments, by a practice of studying God's will for you, and giving yourself to it, abandoning yourself into his hands, then whatever you meet in his creatures that seems to you adorable and worthy of worship will nevertheless be a lure you know how to resist, if you see that it is something contrary to his will. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou worship. That is not a mere negative precept, forbidding us to worship anything else, to serve anyone else. It bids us worship him who is infinite holiness, serve him who is infinite goodness, with the free choice of a Christian heart, enlightened by faith and strengthened by sacramental life within us. And that was Monsignor Ronald Knox teaching on the temptations of Christ and how they actually connect to our lives as Catholics. In, their, in his day, he was warning about what happens when Catholics wed non-Catholics. You, you all have to have known somebody who did that and how often it does not work out very well for them. Sometimes it works out quite well. The non-Catholic becomes a Catholic, but all too often the Catholic becomes a non-Catholic, at least on paper. One can't truly leave the church. You are bound in baptism until you stand before our Lord. But many go and leave the church for sentimental reasons to make their partner happy. It's an interesting take on the, the political temptation our Lord faced, as we saw in that in that analysis of the gospel. I'm so curious what you think of it. So let me know in the comments, please. And uh, hit like and subscribe if you haven't. It does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps too. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.